I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 12 as we continue our study in the, in the book of Mark. This morning we're talking about a greater David that leads to a greater accountability. Uh, we've been going through the book of Mark, as you well know, uh, in this last year, and we'll be doing that uh, some of this year as well. And we are now into the final week of Jesus' life as we look through the Gospel of Mark. So at the beginning of chapter 11, if you'll remember, we saw the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem that marks the beginning of what we refer to as Holy Week. And then um, we're, we're going to be coming to um, chapter 14 and the Last Supper and there's only 16 chapters in Mark, so we're coming to the end. Uh, but in chapters, uh, end of chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13, there's a lot of teaching that Jesus gives. And so that's kind of the area where we're at. That's where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. All of these interactions with Jesus that we see, in, especially in chapters 12 and 13, are, are helpful for us in, in, in understanding who Jesus is. Because we not only learn what he's for, but we learn what he's against. And it helps us fine-tune uh, our understanding of Jesus in, as we look at these passages. So as we look at the verses that we're looking at this morning, uh, verses 35 to 40 at the top of your outline, um, Jesus publicly raises a question here that he's already talked about with his disciples. If you remember back in Mark 8, he asked them, who do men say that I am? So the question is, here in these verses we're looking at, is Jesus the son of David or is he the Lord of David or is he both? Uh, Jesus' point isn't that to deny that he's in David's lineage, but to say that David says, and specifically in Psalm 110, that the Messiah is his Lord. Uh, and is therefore equal to God, and is the true God-man. And because of his identity, because of Jesus' identity, he demands genuine devotion from us, and obedience, and not being a hypocrite, not a hypocritical piety, but something that comes from the heart. So let's read our passage, Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes <clears throat> and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men 
will be punished most severely. This is God's word to us this morning. You know, I have a lot of discussions with people, and I know from talking with many of you that you have some of these same discussions with people. Uh, <clears throat> they ask, Does, how do you know that God exists? How do you know that Jesus is the only way to God? Uh, how do you know the Bible is the word of God? Uh, how does someone become a Christian? When is Jesus going to return? I can tell you a great theological answer to that one uh, right now. I don't know. <laughs> but I know he is returning. And I know it's one day closer today than it was yesterday. Uh, those are all great questions. And I know that, uh, for, again, from talking with you, you've had some good theological discussions with your friends and family, other people that you know. Um, so it's one thing to question each other about theology. It's something completely different when Jesus is asking the questions. Can you even imagine? Uh, and, and, and just to jump ahead, that's why the people loved listening to Jesus do this. He knew, they knew that Jesus was putting these scribes and Pharisees and others in the hot seat. And they were loving it. Um, so verse 35 tells us where he is. He's in the temple courts. Uh, and in chapter 12, and this is on your outline, these are what we've <clears throat> already looked at in the last sermons. So uh, we've looked at his authority and the role of government, if you remember back uh, before Christmas in November, I think it was, in reality of the resurrection and what are the greatest commandments. So uh, the parallel passage to what we're looking at this morning is in Matthew 22. And the Pharisees were present. We know that from Matthew 22. And then as verse 37 says, a large crowd was listening to him. Um, so Jesus has been on the receiving end of these questions uh, all day long. And now it is his turn. So the first thing we see in these verses, and this is number one on your outline, is that Jesus is a greater David. Jesus asks a question that really turns things around on these theologians. And he doesn't just ask any question. He doesn't start with a softball question, if you will. He asks the most important question about his own identity as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the Savior of the world. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, everyone agreed that the Messiah, the anointed one of God, would be a human descendant of David. They knew that. But what Jesus points out and what the scribes acknowledged themselves was that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. So they've established that. And then he quotes Psalm 110. Uh, and and in, in verse 36 of Mark chapter 12, and in, in that verse, verse 36, it says, David called his, his descendant, the Messiah, the Lord, uh, or my Lord. So he's referring to God, the Lord, in the same verse. And then Messiah is my Lord, in that, also in verse 36. So if he thought the Messiah was just his physical descendant, and that's it, why, would he, why wouldn't he have called him just my son, 
That would be what would be normal for him to do. That's not what he does here. Verse 36, David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit. Now, before we get to the identity of Jesus, we need to not miss what is so awesome right here at, at, in, in verse 36. So when it says David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit, okay? So remember, Jesus is speaking. And what does he say here? It, 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 Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 verse 1, and you have this on your outline. And the first thing Jesus does is to affirm that David is the author of this psalm and that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote it. Don't miss this. This is, you know, we, sometimes we skip over this to get to the identity of Jesus, kind of the, the main point of this passage. But this is a perfect description of what the Bible is. It is words written by men who were moved and empowered by the Holy Spirit as they wrote those words. So don't miss this. The word of God is is exactly that. It is his word to us. In 2 Peter 1.21, it's on your outline. In fact, let's read this out loud together. 2 Peter 1.21. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible, the word of God that you have in your hand is a divine human book, but it is from God. It is his word to you. I have a commentary called 66 Love Letters. And it is basically the, the, the thesis of the author is that every book of the Bible, all 66 books, they're all love letters to you. This is God's love letter to us. Um, I, I love what, back now to Jesus and his identity. I love what a former skeptic uh, wrote. You know, I heard someone say that they, they use the, the Bible a lot to, to do evangelism, which we should. And they will encourage people to read through a gospel. And they said they've never had someone read through a gospel um, three times. They've said they've had them read through. Oftentimes, they'll become Christians when they read through the gospel one time. Uh, but not always. And sometimes, that, and he'll say, read it again. And so they'll read it again. And generally, by the second time, they'll, they'll come to faith in Christ. But he said, every once in a while, there's someone that even after a second reading has not come to faith in Christ. But he said, in all the years that I've done this, I've never had somebody read it three times and not become a Christian. So, boy, there's power in the word of God. But here's a former skeptic who read the Bible, and, and here's what he, was, what he said. He said, I was shocked into belief by who Jesus was. The Jesus of the Bible was full of surprises as I read through the Bible. But they were all surprises of perfection, he said. And then he had this description of Jesus. He is tender without being weak. He is strong without being coarse. He is lowly without being servile. He has conviction without intolerance enthusiasm without fanaticism, holiness without Pharisaism, and passion without prejudice. This man alone 
he says, he concludes, never made a false step. No one has ever been able to even propose some word that Jesus ought to have said. That's the Jesus, that's our Jesus, that's our Savior who is perfect in every way. And and we are shocked and surprised at his perfection. The skeptic was. And I invite us to have that same surprise as we read through the the gospels, as we read through the gospel of Mark. Uh, But this is a problem no one had ever seen until Jesus points it out here. And, And here's the truth. This is on your outline. That the Messiah is both David's son and at the same time, his Lord. He is at one and the same time David's, David's son and his Lord. So think about this. What father would call his son or his grandson or his great-grandson Lord? It doesn't make sense. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That's, it wouldn't make sense for David to call his grandson or great-grandson uh, Lord. It would make sense for him to call him son, but not Lord. The Messiah is not simply in the physical line of David. He reigns as king at the father's right hand. So David's words make no sense if he was just a human being. That's what Jesus himself is pointing out about Psalm 110 here in this passage in Mark. David's words, uh, what David is, or what, what Jesus is saying is that he is way more than just this, the, uh, in the lineage of David. And this is where he's trying to get them, their thinking to go. And, and this is what the scribes and the Pharisees had failed to see. And what David does in Psalm 110 is he blasts away the idea that he is just in the lineage of David, that he's just a human. But there are still many that don't see it. Look at verse 36. Again, here it is. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So the logic of it is simple. Think of it this way. David calls God the Lord. Then he calls the Messiah my Lord. And so the logic would say that David saw the Messiah as God, as equal with God. Jesus is saying, how can David's Lord be David's son? If he calls him Lord, how can he also be his son? Look at verse 37. So Jesus asks in verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. How then can the Messiah be his son? And there's only one answer. And the answer is that the Messiah can only be David's son if he's also God's son. In other words, Jesus is saying here, you all are just working with human paradigms. You're seeing David, you're seeing the Messiah only as in the lineage of David. Of what you think the Messiah is, that's what you think the Messiah is supposed to be like. But the Bible blasts those away. David blasts those away in Psalm 110. And Jesus is saying, only I can fulfill what the Bible actually says about the Messiah. So what can we learn from this? What is there for us in this? Jesus comes not as someone to crush the political enemies of Israel. That's not primarily why he comes. His, he comes to crush 
the ultimate enemies of, of the human race. What are our what are, are, are ultimate enemies? He comes to crush sin. He comes to crush death so that we don't have to fear death. He comes to crush evil. He wants to make us righteous before God. And remember 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's the gift that he brings us. And you know, the Pharisees are, are, have kind of been forced into the shadows by Jesus and the scribes. And he's, he's pulling them out to kind of spiritually smack them around a little bit. And, and, and he, the Pharisees had to be livid at what they were hearing Jesus say. They had to be angry about it. But in contrast, look at the end of verse 37. The large crowd was listening to him with delight. They were going, yes, this is great. Give him another one. Yeah, punch him again. This, they were loving this. They were loving seeing Jesus spiritually beat up on the scribes and the Pharisees. And the teacher, Jesus, who never attended the right schools, didn't have the right training, according to John chapter 7. You can look that up later. He confounds the greatest theologians that they had in the land. And, and it seems like the people were just loving it. So the next thing that we see in these verses, and that's number two on your outline, is that Jesus' coming means for us greater accountability. So this is an extreme example. I'll just begin by saying that. But I read about a mom in Oregon who did something that was not very smart. She pulled up to a store <clears throat> And her four-year-old was sleeping in the back seat. So she let him sleep while she kept the car running and went into the store just to pick up something really quick, milk and eggs or something. And she comes back out and the car is gone. It's been stolen. Some guy walked by, sees this car running, sees an opportunity. So he gets in the car and he drives off. And the woman is beside herself, as you can imagine. And as she's freaking out, uh, she sees her car drive back up. And the man gets out, the, the, the thief, the car thief gets out and starts berating this woman for leaving her child in the back seat. <laughs> and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call the police on you. <laughs> what? And he makes her take the child out of the car and then he drives off with the car anyway. All right, so Jesus hates hypocrisy. He hates that. And he hates that on whatever level we exhibit it in our lives. Uh, the scribes were respected. They were feared as Israel's top experts in the law. Uh, basically, they were like a, a lawyer today who had graduated from the most prestigious law school. That's who the scribes were. That's what they thought of them. And Jesus basically had, had, had shamed him into the background. And now he warns those listening to not be like the scribes and the Pharisees. They should avoid the pride of these teachers. We could say it this way, and this is on your outline. Revelation brings 
responsibility. Mark warns the large crowd in verse 37 to beware of the teachers of the law. Why? He, he gives six reasons starting in verse 38. He says to avoid them because they're putting on a show. That's what he, and then he lists out these six things and he warns them and he warns us to avoid these things. And here they are. You've got them listed on your outline, but they're just right from uh, starting at verse 38. They, uh, are, they walk around in flowing robes. Uh, and the flowing robes were basically the first century, first century equivalent to an expensive hand-tailored suit. So there are the suits that, uh, that you can buy for, you know, $150. That's the rack I usually look at. And then, the, you know, the suits that are all personal and hand-done and tailored. They have these showy prayer shawls with tassels on them. But the point is that these religious people, the, the scribes and the Pharisees in particular, were not interested in meeting the needs of the people who were hurting around them. That they wanted others to see them. They wanted others to admire them. It was all about them. And if you remember, if you've read The Purpose Driven Life, the book, uh, the, the first sentence of the book, it's not about you. Not about us. Um, and, and, and that's the point here. You know, and bling is not new. Bling was in the first century. And these, these Pharisees and scribes had their bling on. And then the second thing is to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They demanded that people acknowledge them and their status. That they move out of the way so that these people can, can walk unhindered everywhere. Uh, they, they wanted people to stand up or to bow or do whatever was appropriate in their presence. They wanted to be greeted with the right title. And then number three, to have the most important seats in the synagogue. And number four, the places of honor at banquets. They, they would never think of sitting in the back or sitting unnoticed. They wanted everyone to see them. So they had to sit where everyone would see them. And the most important seats in the first century were the honored seats were in, in the front. And they wanted them to be seen. And Jesus addresses this very plainly uh, in Matthew 23. He says, the greatest among you will be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So these re the religious elites would have none of this. And while they present themselves as respectable and honorable, what do they do? Number five, they devour widows' houses. And that wasn't just limited to widows. That was almost hyperbole of saying that, hey, they, they are taking advantage of helpless people in general. And as, as men of scripture, they were like lawyers. That they, they presented cases uh, and, and they should have known from Scripture because they knew the Scriptures that God cares for the helpless and that, and that God expected them to do the same. And they weren't doing it at all. It was all about them. And the scribes had the reputation for consuming the limited resources of poor people who had the least. And they abused their hospitality because they knew that these people would have to open their homes. And they defrauded them of their homes. 
They made their, their homes put, they would have their, their houses put up for pledges of, what the, of a debt they owed, knowing that they could never repay the debt. And these scribes were involved, like I said, in hearing legal cases and, and giving out sentences. And they should have been applying this to the way they lived their lives. But they weren't doing it. They wanted people to respect their social status. They didn't care who was involved, how poor they were, how needy they were. And Jesus openly declares that they are guilty of fraud, that they're guilty of cruelty. And he also warns them because of their advanced knowledge as who they were, they knew the word of God, that they bore a greater responsibility to live and to teach and, 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 and live out the truths that they knew so that their condemnation, because of not doing all these things, would be more severe. You know, as I was reading this, I couldn't help think of, of us in America and how we are so blessed with so many opportunities to gather freely and worship to turn on the radio just about any time of the day. There are apps so you can get Bible teaching 24-7 and good Bible teaching 24-7. And, and I can't help but, but think that that is, that we have a, a greater responsibility. Think of, you know, when we send our missionaries, we're sending them to unreached people language groups. They have no Bible in their language that's why we're sending them there. That they have uh, no church that they can attend if they wanted to attend a church where they can hear the truth of the gospel. And that, it's a little bit scary. And then the last thing that Jesus charges them with is making a show with lengthy prayers. You know, I, I know people who, who say, you know, I want to learn how to pray. And, and, and they, they might seem like they, they, they're, they're new to it. I remember a friend of mine who was a pastor in New York City, um, uh, uh, there was a, a flight attendant that came that was brand new, a brand new Christian. And um, she had come to a prayer meeting, first time ever she had come to a prayer meeting. And everybody was sitting down and not, I mean, it was just, they were praying silently. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and this gal stood up and, and she said, um, while these people are thinking about what to say, Lord, I just, this is Sylvia here, and I just wanted to talk to you and tell you what I'm thinking. And she just went right on, and, and this guy, the pastor said, this was just pretty refreshing to hear this. She had no clue how to talk to God. She just knew that it was just like talking. So she just talked. And, and, but, but God is so much more concerned about our hearts and what we're, what we're saying in our hearts Versus flowery words. You can have your flowery words. God sees our hearts. It doesn't matter what it sounds like to someone else. God sees our hearts. And, and maybe their prayers were in order to cover up their two-faced dealing with the, with the widows and with other poor people. And then look at verse 40. These people, at the end of it, will be punished most severely. Jesus expands on this in Luke 12. He says, but someone who does not know and then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. 
And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. It's no wonder that James writes this in James 3. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. Maybe we could say that uh, being a pastor is one of the most dangerous vocations. And I realize that fully, that my judgment will be stricter than yours. Uh, And I think that goes for professors at Bible colleges and seminaries who teach the Bible. Um, and, And maybe we could even go a little bit further and say that one of the most treacherous places you could be right now is here, listening to this. Because this only means that you will be held more accountable. You will be judged to a greater extent having heard the truth every Sunday morning. I think there should be a healthy fear in all of us because of that. And we have to make sure that we don't ever become spiritually deaf in receiving God's word, but we walk humbly before him. And we have a heart uh, whose, the ears of our heart, if you will, are, are, are bent toward the Lord so we can listen to him. When he prompts us to do something, I remember having a discussion with someone. They said, how do I know if the prompts are from me or from God? And my response is, if they're not against scripture, then assume that they are from God and go and talk to somebody or do something. When, when, when you feel a prompt, follow the prompts. That's the Holy Spirit directing you. Yes, it's out of our comfort zones sometimes, and that's okay that that's where we experience the help of the Holy Spirit and, and, and his encouragement along the way. You know, Peter struggled so much with pride in the Gospels. But I, it seems like he learned his lesson. Uh, remember what he writes in 1 Peter 5? He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. So we must all take that to heart. You know, I, I heard about uh, Queen Victoria of England. She, I guess, was, when she was young, was really uh, stubborn and hard to teach and totally unmotivated to learn. And, and her tutors and teachers were very frustrated with her because of that. They were like, there's no motivation. She had never been told that one day she would be the queen. And as these teachers talked, they said, you know what? I think we need to let her know that one day she will be the queen. She needs to be serious about her studies. And so they told her and they said it was like an about face. All of a sudden her response was, okay, from now on, I will do what is right. I will do good. I will be good. And so she changed everything she did and she started being motivated in her studies because she knew that, that there was this, this calling on her life that changed everything. And we, you, have a calling on your life. What's the calling on your life? Paul says it in Ephesians, walk worthy of the manner in which you've been called. Walk worthy as a child of the king. Because you have a responsibility as a child of the king that others don't have. And let that be your motivation. So 
Our, our study of these verses should encourage us to ask some hard questions of ourselves. You have them on the outline. Number one, what place does God's word have in your life? Do you know it? Do you read it? Uh, I, I talked to someone this morning who was retired, and they said, uh, I was showing him a little thing that we have on the welcome table of all these boxes. And, uh, <clears throat> and I said, jokingly, I said, you can write down, this is number 50 or number 50 time to write, re- read through the Bible. And, and every time there's a, a little square, you can mark it off. That represents a chapter. And he said, well, I'm retired. Last year, I read through the New Testament 25 times. And I, I was like, well, you can write down number 26 right there <laughs> that you're reading it for the 26th time. So he said, I'm retired. What else do I have to do? Well, that's the best investment I can think of, of spending some time reading when you're retired. Um, read the word of God. Do you want the Bible to do its work in your life? Then you need to resolve to be as biblical as you can and as Christian, think to, to, to think Christianly, to think biblically about what you hear on the news, about what you're talking about with your friends, to saturate your thinking with the word of God. So what should the living word be doing in our lives? You've got it on your outline. Number one, God's word is our spiritual milk. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you can grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. When babies are born, they need to be nourished. Uh, They need to have milk to live and to grow. We don't come home from the hospital and put a kid uh, with a a room full of M&Ms and say, have a good life. No, of course not. Uh, And then secondly, God's word is our bread of life. It is written, Jesus wrote, people do not live by bread alone, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the way Jesus lived his life. And so we need to make our prayer what it says in Jeremiah 15. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me the gladness and joy of my heart. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And we get that joy from being in the word and knowing his word. So we need to eat God's word as our spiritual food every day. And then the the next thing, God's word makes us complete. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching the faith and correcting error, for resetting the direction of one's life and training them in good living. The scriptures are the comprehensive equipment of the man and woman of God and fit them fully for all branches of their work. You want to be prepared and well fit for whatever God wants you to do? You need to let the word of God reset the direction of your life and correct error and and teach you about faith and train you in good living. When we come to God's word, we can say, Lord, thank you for your word. It's truly a gift. Correct what needs to be corrected in me today to make me more like Jesus. That's one of those dangerous prayers we talked about last week. And the second question 
on your outline is why do you serve God? What's your motivation in serving God? I know it's not just to be seen by other people. You want to do it because it will help you grow. It will help you become more like Jesus and to grow. And and no matter what your motivation is, uh, make sure that you're doing it for him. No matter what you're doing, whether you're a pastor, whether you're what you work with, no matter what you're doing, what age group you're working with, where you're volunteering, what you're doing for the Lord, make sure that you're doing it for him. You, you, make sure you're serving for an audience of one. He's the only one that counts. And then finally, and the most important question of all, what do you think about Jesus? And the most important question you can challenge your friends with this year is that question. What do you think about Jesus? Whose son is he? This is how Jesus starts the argument. In Matthew 22, he says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? If you answer only that he was the son of David, then you or whoever has made an eternal error that will be costly for all eternity. The answer was that he is the son of David and he is the Lord of the, and he is the Lord in the flesh. He is the God man and we can rest our soul on that truth. Jesus is both David's son and David's savior. He is David's, he is David's son and he is God's son. Jesus is both human and divine and he is both man and God. So now that we know who he is, our accountability has never been greater. And this is for unbelievers who are hearing this. To, to say no now, after hearing this, is only to invite greater judgment when you stand before God as to why you rejected his son. So make sure you choose wisely to follow Jesus. Not just in salvation, but every single day of our lives to follow him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, who out of love came in the flesh as the son of David and lived a sinless life. Thank you for his death for us on the cross and that he is now at the right hand of the Father and prays for us and prays that we'll model his character. We thank you that he loves us infinitely and cares about the smallest details of our lives so that we can cast all of our care on him. We thank you that he's coming again for us and that we will be like him. By your grace this week, Lord, will you help all of us here to see whatever is happening in our lives from your eternal perspective. Give us that true wisdom, Lord. And as a result, there will be joy because we know you, we know that you're in control. And maybe this morning in your sovereignty, you're drawing some people here to yourself. May they respond to you now in faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And now may the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.